This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Before we begin, we'd like to give a shout out to our most recent financial donors. Thanks so much for helping us to keep the lights on. Teresa, Jonathan, Barbara, and Kayla. For anyone else who wants to learn how to support this podcast, there are links to our Patreon and PayPal accounts on our website, ohiomysteries.com. And now, on with the show. listeners and welcome to ohio mysteries you're listening to a clip of set me free by megan rochelle a christian pop artist from akron ohio megan is our featured ohio musical artist tonight so hang out with us to the end of the podcast we'll tell you all about her and let you listen to that entire song but right now let's throw another log on the fire campers let's dig up a new ohio mystery I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Steve, you know, tragedies around the holidays, they kind of take on an extra level of sadness, don't they? Oh, yeah. It's supposed to be the happiest time of year, so when everyone is celebrating, you're kind of grieving, and it's just so much darker. So true. Today's story took place 47 years ago on this very week. That short window where you're still carrying the glow of a completed Christmas, and now you're waiting for one final celebration, the birth of a new year. Joanne Elaine Coughlin came from a close-knit family growing up in the Brownlee Woods part of Youngstown, Ohio. And she had spent a wonderful holiday with her parents and three sisters. But we don't know if she ever saw the new year. We have to stipulate believe because we don't know. Joanne vanished between the holidays and has never been seen again. This is Joanne's story. Joanne Coughlin, her family called her Joe, was born in 1953. She loved music, was a straight-A student, and definitely was part of the popular crowd at Woodrow Wilson High School in Youngstown. She was nominated to the homecoming court and served as co-captain of the Majorettes, but she was also known for her good humor and her compassion. She thought she might go to college to learn counseling or maybe social service. 
but then the acting bug hit her. By 1974, the 21-year-old was majoring in theater at Youngstown State University, frequently performing at the Youngstown Playhouse, and she had started taking tap dance lessons. She lived in an apartment on Ohio Avenue and had a steady boyfriend in Dave Pollock, a local TV news reporter. Dave sort of signaled Joe's return to a somewhat normal life, as he was a far cry from her last romantic interest. Her former boyfriend, a married man, used heroin and introduced Joe to the local drug culture. It was a time that strained relationships in her life as she experimented with this new shadowy world. But he and Joe broke up, and she seemed ready to exit the fast-paced nightlife that was filled with dark characters. Joanne spent Christmas Day of 1974 with her family. One of her sisters hosted the party. Here's a clip of her mom talking about that day for a feature WYTV did on Joanne's case in 1979. Well, we were all together. We went over to Ruth's for dinner. That's my other daughter. And when we got there, Joanne was already there. And uh, she come and she give me a kiss. And we all had a nice big meal, and everybody was eating and laughing and joking. And then after we all opened our gifts and everything, why, then we started to play Tripoli. We played till about 1.30 that night, and she started packing up some of her Christmas gifts to take with her, and she says, I have to go to work tomorrow. And I says, oh, do you have to work tomorrow? And she said yes, and she packed all her things, and she went. It was the last time they ever laid eyes on her. Joanne worked the next two days. She was employed as an office girl at the Thoroughfare Distribution Center in Austintown. And then there was Friday. As she prepared to leave for the weekend, Joe invited a co-worker to go with her to a health spa. Joanne was excited about a new membership she had just purchased and was eager to check it out. But the friend had plans so Joe said she'd go alone. But first, she headed downtown to do a few errands. She went shopping and bought a blanket, then stopped to mail a check for her life insurance premium. Then she headed to the European Health Spa. It was on Boardman Canfield Road in Boardman Township. Police would later find her name on the sign-in sheet there. But Joanne missed her next two appointments that day. She had plans to meet her boyfriend, Dave, so they could take in an early evening movie. He lived on the other side of town, on Indianola Avenue. Dave waited for her, sitting on the couch and watching TV until he dozed off. She also made plans to join a girlfriend late that night. The friend lived in her apartment building, and they decided they would go out on the town. But Joe never showed up. Saturday came and went. And by Sunday, people began to realize nobody had seen Joanne all weekend. On Monday, when she failed to show up for work, it was obvious something was wrong. Her family called the police. Nobody is sure if Joe actually made it to the spa that day. Her name was on the sign-in sheet, but some family members claimed the handwriting wasn't hers. And nobody at the facility could confirm they had seen her. 
Youngstown officers also checked her apartment on Ohio Avenue. There were signs suggesting she'd be coming back. Her Christmas tree was still trimmed and her opened holiday gifts were lying under it. But there were a few things missing, including a hair dryer, her bathing suit, and a small suitcase. Police jumped to an early conclusion that Joe had run away. That made no sense, her family said. She was happy and content. She never expressed despair or depression. Besides, the money in her bank account was untouched, and there was a lot of it. She had recently received a $3,400 settlement from a car accident. The day Joe's mom called police to report her daughter missing, she decided to visit Joe's bank and alert them about her disappearance, just in case someone tried to withdraw money from her account. The manager at the Struthers branch of the Mahoning National Bank made a note. And what an intuition her mother had, because the very next day, that was New Year's Eve and four days after Joanne was last seen, a woman showed up at the drive-thru of a Mahoning National Bank branch in Boardman and requested to withdraw $800 from Joanne's account. The teller saw the memo on Joanne's account and asked the young woman to come inside and call her mother. The woman said she was in a hurry, on her way to Florida, and that she'd call her mom when she got there. But the teller wouldn't relent, saying either she had to come in and call her mother or go to the Struthers branch and sort things out. The dark-haired woman left. The teller thought the woman looked like she might be under the influence of drugs, but assumed she was off to Struthers to sort things out. Clearly, this was a family problem, he thought. It was a full week later that the teller read a story about Joanne's disappearance in the local newspaper and realized that the woman who had come to his window did not match a photo of Joanne Coughlin. And the police checked the signature on that withdrawal slip that the imposter had left behind at the Boardman branch and determined it was not Joanne's handwriting. It didn't take long for police to find that imposter, and they questioned her. She said she got the bank book from two men who were waiting at the nearby Point Market while she tried to withdraw the money. She identified the men as Robert Schugart and Howard Rodriguez, two figures known to local police for their drug activity. And one of them, Schugart, was even a name that police said kept coming up as they were investigating the murders of several men who were police informants or known for what they called loose lips. Authorities tracked down Rodriguez and Schugart, but they insisted they had nothing to do with Joe's disappearance. Schugart said Rodriguez had stolen Joanne's belongings from a drug party in nearby Warren. As the investigation progressed, it became clear that Joanne may actually have known one or both men. Her former boyfriend had known them both, and Joe once had attended a party at the home of one of those murdered police informants. Also, when they picked up Shugart, he was living in a building where Joanne's former boyfriend once lived. The men never gave alibis for where they were the day Joe disappeared, but they didn't have to. With no evidence, 
the men were released. Joanne's mother wanted police to at least press charges against the woman who had attempted fraud at the bank. But a detective showed up at her house and pleaded with her not to. He said the woman was a potential witness and they wanted to keep her in the background, so to speak, to see if she would provide more information that might implicate Rodriguez and Shugart. But she never did. And in the end, neither that woman nor the two men who had admitted to having possession of Joe's stolen bank book were ever charged. That was a bitter pill for the family to swallow, especially since they had lost all confidence in Youngstown police to learn what had happened to their daughter. Five years after Joanne's disappearance, I found news reports with former detectives on the case still suggesting Joanne had walked away from her life. And to this date, no one has ever recovered her car, a four-door 1968 Ford Fair Lane with a license plate number H4482G. There is an educated guess as to where Joe and her car may be. At the bottom of a stone quarry off US 224 near the Pennsylvania border. That's because several people who lived in the era of Villa Marie Road near the quarries later told police that they saw a woman being dragged out of a car and into a truck about 10 p.m. on December 27, the very day Joanne disappeared. They couldn't say it was Joe, but it sure seemed like a hell of a coincidence. Joe's family paid for a search of the stone quarry, but nothing was ever found. Authorities noted that sediment could quickly cover anything that sank to the bottom. In 1976, Joe's family convinced a Boardman police to open a file on their daughter's case. After all, the health spa where she might have vanished was in Boardman, as was the bank where the imposter attempted to steal funds from her account. Boardman police agreed and put detectives on it. But in the end, they couldn't solve the case either. In 1985... Joanne Coughlin was declared legally dead. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.
Decades passed, and then, in 2010, a brief moment when police thought they might have solved this mystery. Police in Huntington Beach, California, had caught themselves a serial killer. His name was Rodney Alcala, and he was convicted of murdering four women and a 12-year-old girl. But investigators also found hundreds of photos of unidentified women in a storage locker that he owned, leading them to believe there might be other victims. While comparing the photos to missing women on a national database, a Huntington Beach detective thought one of them looked like Joanne Coughlin, and he reached out to Youngstown Police. By 2010, Joanne's boyfriend Dave had relocated to Florida, where he was a radio personality. And the Youngstown Vindicator reached him there to ask what he thought of the potential connection to Alcala. He said Joanne was a talented, aspiring actress, and if Alcala was using his camera to lure his victims, he could see how an offer by a professional photographer might have appealed to her. Alas, after police in Youngstown and Huntington Beach finished comparing notes, they realized Alcala was sitting in a California prison back in December of 1974 when Joanne disappeared. It couldn't be him. Sheriff Randall Wellington was a member of the Youngstown Police Department back when Joanne was reported missing, and in 2010, he said his theory about the case had not changed in three decades. We felt it was robbery, he said. She was going to the health spa, and they grabbed her, killed her, and put her in the stone quarry out by the Pennsylvania line. Today, Joe's case is in the hands of Youngstown detectives Dave Sweeney and Ron Barber, who have been spearheading a renewed effort to solve the city's missing persons cases. A recent story said they've been busy doing things like tracking down DNA samples from relatives of missing people and making sure dental records are included on national databases. So this case is not only open. Lately, it's been active. Anyone with information on this case can call the Detective Bureau at 330-742-8911. Steve, I've seen photos of those quarries, and yeah, they're big, but you know, it's not the Grand Canyon or anything. A part of me wonders, why don't we have the technology that can send a drone over a body of water and pick up an entire car, even if it is buried in sediment? I mean, I I don't know what we have and what we don't have, you know, technologically, but it seems like we should have that by now. Yeah, you would think so. I was watching an episode on TV and they were bouncing echoes off of the bottom of the lake. And that was one of the things they said. If there's sediment down there and it's buried, it's very hard to find. Yeah, we've done several cases on people who they believe are in the Ohio River. And that's one of the things they keep saying. And I'm like, oh, we put a man on the moon. Why can't we bounce can't we do that? radar off of a car that's in sediment? But right. I don't know. Well, let's hope this story doesn't end here. Joanne's siblings are still alive. It would sure be nice to see them get some resolution. Oh, and by the way, I found out some additional information on Rodney Alcala. He was known as the dating show killer. Even though he didn't kill anybody from the dating show, he appeared on the dating show. 
this is where you, they pit two other contestants against you. And then there's a person who's asking questions. They can't see you, but they're asking questions. And based on your answers, they're going to choose you for the date. But I thought it was very interesting because she ended up picking Alcala. And when she met him backstage, she was creeped out. And she did not end up going on the date with him, actually, because of that. And one of the other contestants uh, that he was going up against was an actor who actually appeared in Seinfeld. He was the frozen yogurt uh, guy behind the counter. He said that when he met Alcala, he was Alcala got really close to his face and said, I always get the girl. Oh, my gosh. Steve, I completely forgot that that was the dating show killer. Yeah. You you sent me the links to that. That was crazy. I watched that. Right. And I remember thinking, oh, how creepy and how she wouldn't even go on a date with him after she finally actually met him. Good thing she didn't. Right. Hey, do you have a clip of that that you can play for us now? Yeah. And here's a clip. And welcome to the dating game. And we'll get right underway. It's time to meet our first three eligible bachelors for game number one. And here they are. Well, let's see. Bachelor number one is a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of 13, fully developed. (laughs) Between takes, he might find him skydiving or motorcycling. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Rod, welcome. Then she taught school in Phoenix, Arizona, and now she's here to educate our three bachelors in the art of amour. Welcome, if you will, sensational Cheryl Bradshaw. There'll be one, two, and three. Ask them anything you like to find out more about them, except their name, age, occupation, or income, okay? And we're going to start by having them say hello to you and see how they sound. Number one, would you say hello to Cheryl, please? We're going to have a great time together, Cheryl. Okay. And here we go. Bachelor number one. Yes. What's your best time? The best time is at night. Nighttime. Why do you say that? Because that's the only time there is. The only time? What's wrong with uh, morning, afternoon? Well, they're okay, but nighttime's when it really gets good. Then you're really ready. I'm a drama teacher, and I'm going to audition each of you for my private class. Bachelor number one, you're a dirty old man. Take it. Come on, over here. (laughs) Oh, honey, we ought to go out and boogie. Bachelor number one, I am serving you for dinner. What are you called and what do you look like? I'm called the banana and I look really good. Uh, Can you be a little more descriptive? Peel me. Now, by this time that you're listening to him, he is on probation for raping an eight-year-old and he's already killed four women. When she ends up saying, no, I'm not going to go out with them, that makes him go on another killing spree. So he was already a serial killer when he went on the dating show, though we didn't know it. But they did know that he was on probation for raping a child. That's correct. That's insane. Well, we know he's not responsible for Joanne, but gosh, I'm glad you brought up the rest of that. That's crazy. Let me put on the website the dating show clip. Uh, So our listeners can go in and watch it because that's creepy. 
That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And if you want to leave us a message, we have a phone number, too. 234-738-0966. Again, that's 234-738-0966. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Megan Rochelle is a Christian pop singer-songwriter from Akron. Tonight, we're sharing her new song, Set Me Free. So I asked Megan about the inspiration for her song, and she said this. I wrote Set Me Free as a representation of the journey that I, and I believe a lot of us, go on in finding our identity and freedom in Christ. We often don't recognize our need for God until we see how dark life can be without Him. Set Me Free is a celebration of Christ setting us free from our sins and from the things that have strongholds over us and the journey of Him bringing us into the light. It's not that we don't face situations once we surrender our life to Him. It's that once we do, we have the promise that no matter what we face, we aren't in it alone. Megan Rochelle is present on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Reddit, and TikTok. And you can keep up with her on her website, MeganRochelle.com. Well, let's have another listen to Set Me Free by Megan Rochelle. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.